Acts 8, Part 1, from the sermon series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, spoken by Pastor Peter, on. Happy New Year, Metro. Happy New Year to those in the nursery, to everyone watching an online community. Um, I hope you had a great New Year's Eve. We had a phenomenal New Year's Eve joint worship service with four other churches, and it was just such an amazing, amazing experience. Thank you for those who joined us for that evening, and I know you will completely agree that it was really one of those moments where we got to taste a little bit of heaven here on earth. Um, do you know anyone in your life who has a low tolerance for physical pain? Any, you have anyone like that in your life? Uh, I'm married to one. All right, uh, my wife has a very low tolerance for physical pain. And when we first started dating, you know, there's always that courtship process. So like, it doesn't really annoy you or bother you. But every time I pick her up, she'd get in the car and the first thing she'll say is, oh, my back hurts, or oh, my arm hurts, or oh, my finger hurts, or oh, I got a paper cut, look how much this hurts. And, and in the beginning, I was trying to be a very encouraging boyfriend to her. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. But after a while, it just, it got so annoying. And uh, she did it with such frequency that every time I was picking her up, it took me about 30 to 40 minutes to pick her up. I always thought in the car, I wonder what body part's gonna hurt her today, <laughs> really. I wonder what. And without fail, she always say, oh, this hurts or that hurts. Coupled with that, she, she, she is, you know, I, she's healthy emotionally, but she cries so easily. Any movie we watch, she'll start crying or anything, like, you know, anything sad, she'll start crying. And so because of that, when she was pregnant with our first child, Christina, when we were living in California, uh, I did not think she could handle giving birth to a child without crying and without complaining of the pain. So much so that I bet her $500 that she would either cry or complain that it was too painful. She gladly accepted the bet, and on September 26th of 2001, I lost that bet miserably. <laughs> But, you know, I, I didn't give her the money because, you know, my money's her money. Her money's my money. I didn't need to give her that. So she didn't get the $500, but you should have seen her on that day. I mean, she was like a superhero. I couldn't believe it. She, she didn't complain. She was so courageous. I was blown away at the way she was able to give birth to a child. Probably the greatest pain she'll ever have to endure in her life. She did it so courageously. And what I didn't know was that when... A blessing oftentimes comes from suffering. We probably are willing to sign up for it. You ask any mom out there, none of them would ever say that, oh yeah, you know, giving birth to a child was so much fun, it was great, it was easy. They would share with you that their bodies were never the same afterwards. <laughs> that they went through just the pain, the torture of being pregnant for nine months and giving birth. It was not easy. It was excruciatingly difficult. But all of them would always say that it was a blessing that they went through it because of the baby, the child that was attached to it. I don't think anyone in this room would suffer if there was no blessing attached to it. But I do believe that if there was a blessing attached to a suffering, you would sign up for it. You would. You'd be willing to go through it. And so on this first Sunday of the new year, the question that I have for all of us today is this. Would you suffer for Jesus Christ in 2019? If Jesus asked you to suffer for him, would you be willing to do it? Now for some of you, that could be a very difficult question for you to even entertain because right now, theologically, you're thinking I'm, I'm speaking some kind of heresy because you grew up in a tradition being taught that God is here to bless you, that he's not here to make you suffer. 
right? And so some of us, we really struggle with that question of thinking, what? God wants me to suffer? Doesn't God just want to bless me? And so I think it's really difficult for us to embrace even an understanding of that. But we find in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus teaches his disciples and anyone who is really serious about following him, this is what he says, and many of you know the verse. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Jesus is saying that if we are serious about following him, we must be willing to pick up our cross, which is a symbol of suffering, not once in a while, but every single day. That we have to be willing to do that. And so in 2019, on this very first Sunday, Would you be willing to suffer for Jesus? I don't think any of you would be willing to do it if there wasn't a blessing attached to it. Today, as we continue in our series in Acts chapter 8, and we look at 8 verses 1 through 8, we're going to answer two critical questions. The first one is simply this. Why, why should we suffer for Jesus in 2019? And then the second question is, how do we do it? How do we suffer for Jesus today. What does that even look like? Because none of you are going to die for your faith in Jesus. All right? So how do we do it? Why and how do we do it? Look at Acts chapter 8. We're going to go through verses 1 through 8. Acts 8 verses 1 through 8. On that day, and, and, and just to kind of follow up here, if, if you've missed coming here for the last couple of weeks, um, last Sunday, Pastor Clay kind of took us through Stephen, the final discourse of Stephen. And, and what we learned last week was that Stephen was martyred for his faith, the very first Christian to ever die for their belief in Jesus Christ. He was stoned to death by the Sanhedrin council and by other Jewish people. And as a result, he died. And now in verse eight, all hell breaks loose. A lot of Christians now are experiencing persecution. So it says in verse one, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word whenever they, wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with, for with shrieks, impure spirit came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. So God, we come to you today and we ask that you would just speak to us through this text to teach us why we have to suffer and how we can do it today. I pray for those, especially in this room, God, um, that might be blindsided by this message today. I pray, God, that you would really prepare their hearts to receive you in the fullness of what that means today in their own lives. And I pray, God, that as we as Christians decide to live for you more passionately, um, willing to suffer if you call us to God, I pray that we would get to grow deeper in our understanding of who you really are. So God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray, God, it it would be pleasing unto you. And all of God's people said... Amen. All right, so why should we suffer for Jesus? A very important question. Why do we do that today in the 21st century? What is it about suffering for Jesus that will often lead to a greater blessing? Uh, The first reason why we suffer for Jesus is because we love him. 
It's because we love him. Listen, if you don't love Jesus, then this is obvious. You shouldn't suffer for Jesus. But if you're here today, and I do believe there's a large number of us in this room where you would simply say, you would agree that you love Jesus Christ. If you love him, you will suffer for him. We always suffer, we're always willing to suffer for the people that we dearly love. And so Stephen was the very first martyr for the Christian in the early church. And why was he willing to be stoned to death? Why was he willing to die for Jesus Christ? Because he loved him. That's why. We find that now that the early church is being scattered, these Jewish-speaking Jews, they're, they're being persecuted by, the, by, by a man by the name of Saul the Pharisee. Now Saul is eventually, in chapter 9, he, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he gives his life to Jesus, and Saul becomes Paul the apostle, who later authors two-thirds of the New Testament. But here he is Saul the Pharisee, and he is a righteous man. you got to know this. He truly believed in God, in Yahweh. And as a result of that, he believed that Christianity was such a cult that it was destroying the very integrity of, Jewish, of the Jewish faith. And so with the permission of the Sanhedrin Council, which is the Supreme Court of Jerusalem, he had the authority to persecute people. He had the authority to harm people physically. He had the authority to put people in prison. And you can only imagine the scene that's happening here because Saul is going around Jerusalem, taking people away from their families. Could you imagine as a little kid growing up, seeing your mom and dad being arrested because they're a follower of Jesus Christ and they're put in prison. Some of them are beaten. Some of them are physically hurt in deep ways as a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. And you would only think that when something like that would happen, that perhaps the movement is in dire jeopardy. But it wasn't. In fact, more and more people began to share and believe in God, and more people, and then the more persecuted that they would experience, the more they went out and shared about Jesus Christ. And so they scattered, they left Jerusalem for their own safety, but as they scattered, God used that scattering as a proliferation of the gospel message, because everywhere they went, they didn't go in hiding. They weren't quiet about their faith in God. They were extremely, extremely open to sharing why they believe in Jesus Christ, why he is their Lord and Savior, and why they hope that they too would follow Jesus Christ as a result of it. And why did they do that? Why were they willing to put themselves out there? Because they love him. Because they love Jesus Christ. You see, there's a difference between wanting to suffer for Jesus and willing to suffer for Jesus. If you are here today and you actually want to suffer for Jesus, I think there's something wrong with you. You're not right in the head, man. I'm serious. When I was in seminary, I met a few seminary students that wanted to be missionaries. And they said that their dream is to be martyred for their faith in God on the mission field. And I just thought, you're so weird. You're strange. You're just not normal. Who wants to die? It's just not a normal response. And after kind of getting to know them a little bit more, I get it. It's because they're reading books like The Gates of Splendor by Jim Elliott, who was martyred uh, for his faith in South America in the Amazon jungle. They read these people who were so bold about their faith that they ended up being killed as a result of it. And so they wanted to have a faith like that, but they also wanted books to be written about them probably. They also wanted certain things to happen, maybe that their popularity or their fame would rise because they were willing to die for Jesus Christ. So I don't think any of us in this room honestly should want to suffer for Jesus. You must be willing to suffer for Jesus. It's a very different posture, isn't it? Are you willing to suffer for Jesus Christ today? Are you willing to do it because you love him? Now, I don't have to tell you parents, 
if I asked you, would you be willing to suffer for your child if it meant that they would not suffer if you suffered? All of you parents, most of you, I'm pretty certain, would say absolutely. My son Christian was sick this week, and when he gets sick, he gets a really aggressive fever. Um, sometimes he hits like 103, 104. And so uh, I just felt like, you know, he needed to sleep with either myself or my wife. And the first night he slept with Jenny, and the second night he slept with me. And um, I remember just kind of seeing him sleep, and I was just praying for him. And, and there was a part of me that just said, if I could take and absorb that sickness, and, he, and that would mean that he would be well, I would gladly sign up for it. I don't want to do it, but I'm willing to do it. Why? Because I love the little kid. I don't want a 13-year-old to suffer like the way he was suffering for a few days. And so if you love someone, you are willing to go to that place of suffering for them, right? And if you truly say you love Jesus, if you say you truly love Jesus, then a natural part of what it means to follow him should be that, Lord, if I do the things that you want me to do, I will gladly, gladly suffer for you. Several months ago on social media, somebody from our church put out on Facebook that their nephew was in real deep, bad condition. Uh, they were on the verge of dying. This nephew needed a kidney. And if he did not get a kidney, he would die. A younger man, of course. Somebody from our church, her name is Janelle Bang, read that on social media, decided to pray about it. And for some reason, she decided to be the person to donate her kidney to this complete stranger that she never met. Now, of course, she experienced a lot of backlash because of it. Family members were up in, they were in uproar about it. Some of her even close friends were saying, what are you doing? I mean, if you, if I can understand if you give it to somebody that you know, a kidney that you know, but why are you willing to give a major part of your body, an organ, to somebody you don't even know, a complete stranger? Why? It was a big question. And you know, what she, you know how she answered it? She put it out in public. She said, the reason why is because I love Jesus. And if Jesus gave his life for me so that I could live, why can't I donate an organ to help somebody else live? I mean, it's really amazing. This is a young girl. And so a couple weeks ago, she went to Seattle. She donated her kidney. And he is doing phenomenal as a result of it. Body's completely taken to the kidney so well. And she suffered physically, like really suffered. Like you donate a body part, of course it's going to hurt. Physically, she went through a real, real difficult time. And she still is going through a difficult time even to this day physically. Because it's going to take a few months before she kind of feels a little bit more normal. But why was she willing to do this? Because she loves God. She loves Jesus. If you say that you love Jesus, you naturally should have a desire to want to suffer for him if he asks you to. You should be willing to want to suffer for him, not that you really want to do it. And if the answer is no, then I think we really need to ask ourselves, do we love Jesus today or do we just see him as like a genie that we rub in a bottle, hopes that he'll give us some things every year, something nice for us so that we can be blessed. Jesus says, if you really want to follow me, you got to pick up that cross daily and follow me. And we can do it if we truly love him. And you'll grow in deeper love for God when you're willing to suffer him. The things that you will learn and, and, uh, and grow in your love for God when you're willing to suffer him is just absolutely uh, amazing. The second reason why we suffer for Jesus is because we really get to know him when we do. And that alone should be one of the greatest reasons why you and I should be willing to suffer because when we do suffer for Jesus, we're gonna get to know him in a deeper way. Why did Stephen 
get martyred? Why was he willing to do that? Why were these young Christians willing to go through hardships and persecution? Because they really got to know God as a result of it. There is something that you and I learn when we're willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. There's something that we learn that we can never learn if we decide not to suffer for Jesus. I hope you understand that. There's something deep that you learn. And you know what the thing that you learn is? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Hey, take that for one. That you and I should glory in our suffering. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. There are television shows, there are like biographies written about people who truly know how to persevere. Because that perseverance often will deepen their character as a person and we won't fully know true hope and experience and live into true hope unless we suffer for Jesus Christ. How many of you here need a little bit of perseverance today? That you feel like you kind of want to give up on life? How many of you might need to grow in a little bit of character? And how many of you today need, on this very first Sunday of the new year, need to grow in a little bit of hope? Paul says it happens when we're willing to suffer for Jesus Christ. You see, that's so hard for us to embrace today because we live in such a hedonistic society, don't we? We're so addicted to pleasure. Americans are so addicted to pleasure. We want pleasure. We don't want to even wait for it. We don't want to work harder for it. We want it super fast. It's just, it has to come real fast. And so for us, because we live in such a pleasure-filled society, it's very hard for us to think that we should be suffering if we follow Jesus. In fact, we embrace a, a theology that when we follow Jesus, we are exempt from suffering. We don't have to suffer, and we can just experience a lot of pleasure that God wants to give to us. The pleasure doesn't often come unless you and I are willing to suffer for Jesus. In fact, the pleasures of the world, it never lasts. It always leaves you starving for more. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a little a candy that the more you eat it, the more you want it. And it just gets, and then the more you eat it, then eventually what begins to happen? Like what happens when you eat a lot of candy? Like you just can't control yourself and you eat too much of it. I do it all the time. You feel sick. You start living in regret. Like, man, I wish I didn't eat like, you know, five Hershey bars right now. Like you just felt like you overdid it. You ate too much of it. And that's the pleasure of the world. It never fills. In fact, Pascal says that we all have this God-shaped vacuum. And every single one of us, we try to fill it with success. We try to fill it with money. We try to fill it with a wild sex life or whatever, traveling, whatever it might is. Whatever we try to do. And the more we do it, the more hungrier we get, the more we want it. And it just never, ever satisfies us. It just does not satisfy us. No matter how much you experience it. Because if you want to be successful today, you'll always find that there's somebody more successful than you. And you're going to want to be as successful as them. If you want to be wealthy, and some of you are wealthy, but you want to be more wealthier because you meet people who are richer than you. Some of you have traveled. You should be thankful for the places you've gone to, but you want to travel even more because you feel like there's others who've traveled a lot more than you have, whatever it might be, right? When I, when I was in college, my senior year, I got an internship working at NBC News at 30 Rockefeller Center. Talk about an internship. I was a marketing major in college, and so their on-air promotions department, uh, which makes commercials for the network, was looking for some interns, and I gladly volunteered for it. And I went, and I started working there a couple times a week, and it was like a ch child in a candy store. 
I saw celebrities everywhere. I was walking like near them, right? I saw Prince. I mean, he didn't say hi to me, but I still saw him. We were very close together, right? It was so great. Saw Holly Berry, Joe Montana, my greatest sports hero. I saw certain people. I saw all the anchors. I had a crush on Katie Couric back then. Katie Couric. And, you know, I shared a bathroom with Brian Gumbel and, and Matt Lauer. It's just crazy, like just the experience as a college kid. So I was hoping and praying that when I graduated that they would hire me. And when I graduated, they did, uh, because in 1996, they were launching MSNBC. And I graduated in 96, summer of 96, and on July 12th is when we launched. They hired me to be the production assistant for the on-air's promotions department, and I was elated. I was so excited, so happy. I basically worked for the producer. I helped the producer make commercials by finding footage for them. That was my job, right? And I remember just looking at these producers and I said, man, if I can be a producer one day, boy, would I be happy. It would really make me happy. And a few years later down the road eventually happened. And you would think I would be truly happy and content, but I wasn't because at that point I said, well, now I want to be a director for, my, for our department. And I, if I, that ever happened to me, I knew then I would want to be like the vice president of our department. It just would go on and on and on. And what I realized was that no matter how much we want to seek pleasure from this world, it never satisfies because it always leaves us wanting more. True pleasure, Metro, happens when you and I know God intimately. God is the creator of joy, isn't he? Isn't God the creator of pleasure? And if you and I want to experience that, we have to get to know him more because as we do, we truly experience the pleasure in which God gives to us. Look at Psalm 1611. Look at what David said. David says, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasure at your right hand. Oh, that's great, isn't it? The pleasure that God offers you and I is not worldly pleasure because it doesn't last, but he gives you eternal pleasures. And it's at his right hand. He gives it to you and I. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. When you look at this in the Greek and how it's worded, it's Paul is simply implying that when he shares in Christ's suffering, he gets to know him more. And when you and I get to know Jesus more, when we get to know God more in our pain and in our suffering, what happens is that we truly experience true, pure pleasure eternal pleasure that lasts forever. Amen? We really do, all right? So the question that I have for us today on this very first Sunday of the new year is, how, is important, how important is it for you to know Jesus today? Because if you really want to know God this year, you really need to suffer. You need to be willing to suffer today, all right? That's why Jesus says you've got to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow me daily. Daily, right? And one of the reasons why, and we've been studying the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is really about the power of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit empowers a group of people to go out and to minister to God. And that's a beautiful thing. But one of the reasons why the Holy Spirit fills us is so that we can do ministry. But the beautiful thing about doing that ministry is so that we can have strength to suffer because ministry isn't always kumbaya. Ministry is painful. Ministry is tough. And one of the reasons why you and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit is because we will suffer and being filled by the Holy Spirit will allow us to suffer in an amazing way where we can learn more about God, all right? Where we can learn more about God. Look at what happens to Stephen. 
when he's suffering, when he's being stoned to death in chapter 7, verse 55. Look at what it says. As he's literally being stoned to death and he's dying, it says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why should we be willing to suffer? Why do you and I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit as we go through suffering? Because when we do, we're going to see Jesus and God standing right side by side together. That gives purpose, that gives hope, even in the darkest times that you and I go through in life. Redemption, Metro Community Church, is the heart of what the gospel message is about. But redemption doesn't happen when you need, if, if you don't need to be redeemed. Redemption can only happen when there's something that looks like death in your life that needs deep redeeming. And that's what happens. And so when we suffer and we suffer for Jesus and we're willing to do that, we will truly, truly experience true pleasure because we're growing in our knowledge of God. So why do we suffer? Why should you and I be willing to suffer for Jesus? Because we love him and we're growing deeper love for him and also so that we can know him more, which leads to true pleasure. So then how do we do it? How do we suffer? Because none of us in this room were going to be killed for our faith. No one's going to be martyred for their faith. How do we suffer in America in the 21st century? There are two things that we see here in this passage that's going to help us to be willing to suffer this year in 2019. The first is this. We suffer for Jesus when we create time and space to mourn. You suffer for Jesus when you create time and space to mourn. Verse 2, godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. These men who loved Stephen, they buried him. These, these people who were filled with the Holy Spirit, what did they do? They created time and space to mourn. They didn't just say, you know what, let's just go out and do more ministry. Let's just do whatever we need to do. No, they actually created time and space to mourn. We don't mourn in our in our country. The culture of America doesn't give you space to mourn. And I think even worse than the American culture is the church culture. The church culture does not teach us that we should mourn, that mourning is a spiritual thing. Because they believe that because you have God on your side, everything should be okay. So just come on, get back up, suck it up, and just move forward. And you and I have to realize that mourning is such a deep spiritual exercise that you and I can participate in. Why do these godly men mourn? What was the reasoning? Because they knew the words of Jesus. And what they knew here is in verse, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. They knew what Jesus taught while he was living on earth. And he said this. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Can I get an amen? amen. Why do you and I have to mourn today in 2019? So that God could comfort us. If you don't mourn the tragedies, the losses, the hurts that you're going through in your life, if you don't mourn those things, guess what? You and I become less human because we're not experiencing the very comfort that God wants to give to us today. And so these godly men mourned. They mourned deeply because Stephen had died. And as they did, they experienced the very comfort of God. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5. He gives a deeper meaning of why you and I should, uh, should mourn. It says, verse 3, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Why do you need to mourn today so that you can experience the comfort of God and so that you can comfort others with that very same comfort? Mourning is an act of suffering because mourning is putting yourselves at a place of utter weakness. It's not a place of strength. 
And it's a place where you just mourn and let God comfort you as you grieve. Americans don't do it well. It's one of the major reasons why 90% of all men in this country are depressed today. One of the critical reasons why that's the case is because they're unwilling to mourn today. They're unwilling to let go. And I get it. I get why we're afraid to do that because as a little child, we didn't know how to mourn. And when we went through some hard things, we just learned to shut down emotionally. And what was a survival skill for you as a little child has now become a curse because you're not even a human anymore. You don't feel. Whenever you go through hardships, you just shut down. You become a robot. And you just don't feel you're like a machine and you're not a machine. You've been given the faculties of all the different emotions that God wants you to experience. And it makes you human when you can allow yourself to enter into those places. And if you would just allow yourself to enter into those places, you would experience the comfort of God. Jesus needed it. You know, Jesus would not have died for us on the cross if he didn't have Gethsemane. Look at Matthew 26. Look at what he does here in verse 36. I know many of you know this. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, not, yet not as I will, but as you will. He does this two more times. He grieves. In Luke's account, it says that he was grieving so much, he was mourning so much, that he was literally sweating droplets of blood. If Jesus Christ didn't mourn, he probably wouldn't have been crucified on the cross for us. Why was Gethsemane so important to Jesus? Why did he create time and space to mourn? So that he can experience the comfort of God. Because what he was going to experience was the complete opposite of that comfort. And he needed to experience God. None of you in this room, because you're humble, none of you in this room would say you're better than Jesus. You know you're not. I know I'm not. Because Jesus was not only fully man, but he was fully God. And Metro, if Jesus needed to create time and space for him to mourn, who do we think we are not giving ourselves permission to do that? And so will you mourn today? Because maybe the reason why you're losing your faith in Jesus is because you're not mourning. And I know how terrifying it is for you to lose control. And you don't know what's going to happen if you lose control, if you begin to start mourning. And I get it. You're terrified because you don't know what's going to happen. But can you believe in the Bible? The Bible says that when you mourn, you're blessed because you'll be comforted by God. And so will you be able to do that? A few years ago, I got a call from a friend of mine and, uh, from California. He said, hey, Peter, um, we're pregnant. We're going to have a kid. They've tried really hard. And it's been many years. And so I said, congratulations, man. And he called me many months after that. And uh, after he, call, he called me, he said, hey, Peter, um, I just, we just gave birth and my wife had a son. We have a son. But Pete, you got to pray for me because the doctor said he may not make it. And so I said, of course, I'll pray. And I prayed, I prayed for him. And I said, Corey, I'll pray for you every day. Keep me up to date of what's happening. I called him a few uh, days later, and I said, how's everything going? And he goes, not good, critical condition. And then about three days later, he calls me, and he says, Pete, my son's dead. And I just said, oh, I'm so sorry, Corey. And I said, how are you doing? 
And he says, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm keeping it together because my wife's a mess and I got to keep it together right now. And I said, but Corey, you also have to give yourself time to mourn. He said, I can't. He said, because if I do, I might lose my faith in God. And I said, Corey, you're already losing your faith in God right now. You got to give yourself space and time to mourn right now. And I wish the story ended really well. I wish I could tell you that he actually did, but he didn't. And even till this day, he's struggling with the reality that God has taken his son from him. You see, Metro, when you and I don't mourn through hardships in our life, what we do then is that we begin to blame God for it. It's probably one of the first things that we begin to do. But when you can mourn with God, because God never promises that he's going to uh, not allow you to go through pain. His love for you is not authenticated by him preventing bad things from happening in your life. Come on. His love for you is authenticated by mourning with you, by comforting you, by journeying with you every single day, helping you to get through a difficult loss in your life. And through that, there is something beautiful that can come about through it. So Metro, on this very first Sunday of this new year, will you mourn? Will you suffer and mourn and give yourself time and space to mourn? And I know for some of you it's a daunting task because you've never done that. But will you finally learn to be a human being? And will you begin to start mourning some of the losses in your life and begin to believe that God will be with you every step of the way? You need to learn to mourn. First way in how we suffer today in 2019. Second way in how we suffer for Jesus is when we accept people we do not like. This is by far for me the hardest one out of the two. Look at Acts chapter eight, verse five. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said, not only to what he said, but they gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Which you may not notice here is that Philip actually accepted people he didn't like. He accepted Samaritans. Jewish people never got along with Samaritans. They hated each other. The reason why was because Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish and half-Gentile. And because they had Jewish blood, they believed that they were God's chosen people more so than even the Israelites. And they also had their own version of their own Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And so because of that, they just believed that they were God's chosen people. And so the, the Jewish people, the pure Jewish people did not like that very much. So they were adversaries. They were enemies. They did not like each other. And what does Philip do? Philip accepts these Samaritans. He goes and he ministers unto them a beautiful thing. And if you and I want to suffer for Jesus, if we're willing to suffer this year, one of the greatest ways in how we can suffer for him is, yes, we mourn and we grieve and we've experienced God's comfort and we'll learn so much about him. We'll experience his love as he comforts us. But the other great thing in which God can really help you and teach you about who he is, is if you learn to accept people you don't like, that rub you the wrong way. People, and I'm not talking about tolerating because we're okay with tolerating people that we don't like. I'm not talking about toleration. I'm talking about acceptance. Because God encourages you and I to do our best to love people. And it's so easy for you and I to love people that we get along well with. You don't need God for that, but you really do need God to love people that you don't like. Yeah. And the first step of loving someone is always acceptance. We can't just throw the word out, I love you. How can you love someone if you don't accept them? And so we have to learn to accept. Why do you think the people who are considered the worst sinners in the, in the Bible, in the Gospels, why were they so attracted to Jesus and so repulsed by the Jewish leaders like the Pharisees? Why? Because Jesus accepted them in the midst of their sins. 
The Jewish leaders didn't. The Jewish leaders reminded them how evil and sinful they were. But Jesus accepted them and treated them like a normal human being that's deeply loved by God. You and I have to learn to suffer by liking some people that we may not like. We have to be willing to accept them. All right, Acts chapter 7, verse 59. I want you to see what Stephen does here. As he's being stoned to death. This is why Stephen is one of the greatest heroes in the Bible. Look what it says in 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. There's only one other person in the Bible while they were literally being killed, uttered that prayer, and that's Jesus. When he was on the cross, he said, Lord, please forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And here is Stephen saying, God, forgive these people for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus accepted even his own enemies who were killing him. Listen, if I was Stephen I'd be, and I see Jesus and God standing at, there, I'd be like, you remember what they're doing to me. You make sure your judgment is swift. I mean, there's, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like, they're killing me. Make sure you take these people out. Right? But he doesn't do that. He says, God, forgive them. He accepted the very people that were killing him. I don't know about you guys, but that to me is one of the hardest things, and that really is suffering for Jesus today. That's, that's the idea of picking up the cross every single day and walking towards him, right? It really is difficult. And uh, for a lot of us, we struggle. I think every single one of us in this room, you have minimum 10 people you don't like, minimum, right? 10 people you've never talked to since they've hurt you in whatever way they've done. And the challenge that God is presenting to you and I today on this very first Sunday of the New Year is will you accept them? Because when you can accept them, you know what you free yourself of? Bitterness. You see, when you don't like somebody and you don't do anything about that and you continue to dislike them in many ways, what bitterness is is that it becomes a cancer to your soul. And you think you can isolate bitterness. You think you can just isolate it to the one person you don't like, but it never works that way. Because it's cancer and it's not treated, it will spread to every organ in your body. And that means it spreads to every relationship in your life, especially the close ones. You cannot just isolate a bitterness towards one person. That bitterness begins to spread like wildfire. And before you know, you just become a very deeply bitter person towards everyone. You become jaded. And I know that there's some people that deserve your bitterness. I get it. But you know what you don't realize? What you don't realize, you don't realize how capable you are of loving because you've been living so long in this bitterness. You have no idea how capable you are of actually loving someone if you would just accept them and lean upon God. I know it's like suffering, but the suffering that you and I will end up living if we continue to just live in bitterness and not accept those that we don't like is far greater and has no purpose that God has for you. God doesn't want you to suffer like that. He wants you to suffer by accepting and loving because in that you're going to learn something about him. In that you're going to experience something. And who knows? Maybe there can be some kind of reconciliation that can happen between you and that person. And there can be a story of redemption involved in that. So who do you need to accept today in your life that you may not like very much? Who do you need to do that with? 2018 was, um, for me, it was, it was a definitely a, a year of challenge. You could say suffering. Um, but it was definitely a year of growth. Yeah. 
We had a building campaign back in April, and we did it for six weeks. And part of this is our church is 14 years old. We're going into our 15th year. It's time that we have a physical home. And we originally don't want to just build a church. We want to build a community center so that we can continue to reach the people here in the city, the young kids and different things like that. Um, I knew that this was going to be a tall order. Our goal was to raise $2.5 million uh, for the next three years by the pledges of you. And, uh, and it, was, it was challenging in every way. Would I ever do it again? Absolutely not. But we raised it. Through pledges, we raised $2.6 million. And that's really a testament to God. It really is. Yeah, you can clap for that. Praise the Lord for that. Um, and I'm so grateful. And, you know, for those who made pledges, thank you. And hopefully you'll just continue to, to, to do the best you can to honor what you pledged because you, you did that with God and with our church and that we can together um, do what God is calling us to do here in Englewood. But even before the capital campaign happened, uh, a few weeks before we actually launched it, uh, Pastor Kevin asked if he could meet with me. And I said, sure. I was like, what's up, man? Sat down. And he said, hey, um, Next September, I'm going to be 65 years old. I said, yeah, I know that. He said, um, Linda and I have been praying about this, and uh, we feel like it's time for us to leave Metro when I turn 65. And we want to move to Chicago, and we want to be close to our grandkids. Like, we just want to be with them. We want to help raise them. And, you know, in, I'll, externally, I try to be as cool as possible. And I just said, oh, okay. I said, well, you know, let me, let me think about this for a little while. I, I got to just kind of process this. Inside, I'm just saying, no, 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 no. You cannot leave. There's no way I'm going to let you leave this church. All right? And so I started thinking about it, met with our leadership team. I said, what do we got to do to keep Kevin here? Let's figure it out. Let's figure it out. If he's not happy, let's do it. If he wants more vacation, we'll give it to him. Like, whatever we need to do, the Kevin Swanson here, we got to keep him here forever. And I just thought, why are you leaving me now? We got to build a building together. You can't leave me now. Come on. And so I was just like, I was a mess when he told me that. And so I went back to him and I said, I'll give you double your vacation. All right. Uh, whatever. I was like, Chicago, New Jersey, it's not that far. You know, come on. It's a two-hour plane ride at most. Come on. I just go every month. It's fine. Go for a few days. Go for a few weeks. It's okay. We'll give you unlimited vacation. He said, Peter, it still doesn't answer the fact that we're still almost a thousand miles separated from our grandchildren every day. And I just thought to myself, what is it about grandkids <laughs> that will drive somebody, a grandparent, to want to live closer to them? I don't, I'll, maybe I'll know one day when I have my own grandkids. But I had to accept it. Now, he's not leaving until September, but he's going to leave. And my mentor, I told him I poured my heart out to him. You know what he said? He said, it's really good that he's leaving. I said, why? He said, because God wants you to suffer. <laughs> How would you like to have a mentor like that? <laughs> he said, you depend too much on this guy. And you need to learn to depend more on God. And you have to go through some pain to learn how to do that. Oh, man. During the time of the capital campaign, I met up with a lot of you, and you guys were so amazing. Your, your, your passion to want to do this was really, really was inspiring to me. But there was all, always a few that didn't agree with it. And some of my colleagues, my friends in ministry who all own buildings, and they have buildings with their church, they said that when you do a capital campaign, just know that you're going to lose 10% of your people. 
And I said, no, no, I don't want to lose 10% of our people. And we didn't lose 10%. A few did leave our church as a result of it because sometimes there are Christians that don't agree that a church should be talking a lot about money and should have a building and so on and so forth. And I totally got that, you know, and they they decided to leave. But as I met with different people and 98% of it was so encouraging, there was always like that 2% that you'll never forget, like the hard ones. And there was this one conversation I had with a guy on the phone and it was a successful guy. And I started sharing with him about, you know, what we're trying to do. And just as I was sort of in sentence, he said to me, he said, you know, I don't believe a church should own a building. And I said, I agree with you. We're not trying to, it's not try, we're not trying to build a church. We're building a community center. And he says, still, I don't believe the church should own a building. And he kind of stated his case. And I started to state my case. I felt like I need to defend our position as a church. And before you know it, these two alpha males just started kind of going at each other, you know, in the most civil way as possible, but it was, we were going at each other. And uh, I could tell that it was not going well. It was getting kind of bad. And so I just kind of pushed back a little bit. I said, you know, let's just kind of pray through all of this, you know, if that's okay. I said, you know, thank you for your time. Um, I hope you have a good day. Goodbye. I didn't hear anything. I said, um, goodbye click. I remember just going, my goodness, did this guy just hang up on me? He just hung up on his pastor. Who does he think he is? <laughs> Hanging up on his pastor. I got so angry. I got to find out where this guy lives. I got to go to his house and confront him about this. You know, have him repent of the sin and what he just committed. I was so livid and so angry about it. I was deeply upset. You could say I didn't really like him very much after that. And I'm pretty sure he didn't like me after that. But the hardest part of all of this was that many months before that, I had agreed to officiate his daughter's wedding. And now I was left with a dilemma. Do I officiate this wedding with a a guy I'm not very fond of? And I don't know even if he wants me to do it, because I'm sure he's angry at me of what I said to him, some of the things I've shared. But of course, I said I definitely have to do it because she has nothing to do with this. You know, poor girl if I said no. And so I did. Officiated the wedding. I remember just seeing him there and shook his hand. You can sense the tension between us. It was awkward. And then, um, you know, after the wedding and everything, just celebrating, I, he came up to me and said, hey, thank you for doing this. I said, no, it was great for me. And I just said, I just want to say congratulations. You have a wonderful, beautiful family. And, This wedding is amazing. I mean, it was like a wedding for royalty. It was really amazing wedding, amazing venue and so forth. Shook hands. And usually when you officiate a wedding, typical protocol is that you get an honorarium. Pastor usually gets an honorarium just for their troubles. I didn't get anything. And I got in my car just kind of thinking, and it didn't really bother me very much, but just the thought, oh, okay. Maybe another thing of disrespect. And like I was kind of processing it, and I was grateful that I did it, but I didn't understand the lesson and what God wanted me to see and learn until I talked to my mentor again. <laughs> and you know what he said to me? He said, what you just went through was a gift from God. It was a gift that you were willing to do this wedding and that he didn't give you an honorarium. I said, why would you say that? Why do you think that was a gift to me? He said, Peter, do you believe you're a servant of God? 
I said, yeah, yeah, I am. He goes, do you preach that Christians should be servants for God? I said, absolutely, I preach about it a lot. He said, how are you ever going to know that you're a servant of God if you don't let someone treat you like one? He said, the reason why that was such a gift and the reason why it was a gift that he didn't give you an honorarium because he treated you like a servant to teach you that no matter what, you are just a servant of God. That was so hard for me to hear, but processing it months after months, what a gift. Because I want to be a Pharisee sometimes. I want to be treated with respect because I'm a pastor. I sometimes want to sit at the nice places at the table. I fall into that same trap. But at the end of the day, who I am, if I want to be a disciple, I have to know that a disciple is a servant. The greatest calling that he has placed upon my life and our lives is that we are called to be a servant of God. And how are we ever going to know that we're a servant of God if we don't let people treat us like one? And so this man gave me a gift. He became my teacher, even though I didn't like him. But God called me to accept him, accept this situation. And as a result, I learned so much. It was painful. It hurt in every way. But I learned so much about God. I learned so much about myself. And as a result, I'm more committed than ever to trying to do my best of being a servant of God. Metro Community Church, will you mourn? Will you accept people you do not like? Because if you can start doing those two things this year, you're going to experience God's comfort. You're going to experience lessons that God will teach you about him, about you, and the posture that we need to have when it comes to following him. And my hope is that you will be blessed because your love for him will grow only deeper and you experience perseverance, you experience character, and you experience a hope from the Lord. Let's suffer together as a church for Jesus. Let's pray. If you can just go to God right now, completely honest with where you are and what you're feeling, I think that would be a really good step today. The greatest thing that you need to know today is God can handle what you're feeling towards him. He can handle what you're feeling towards other people. He's not going to say, yo, you're a Christian. You shouldn't speak like that. He doesn't do that. He gives you space. Two-thirds of the Psalms, which is a book of prayer, is on lament. Two-thirds of the Psalms is on lament. If that's true, then many of us should feel empowered that if we need to offer a prayer of lamentation, that we would do it. So I just want to give you a moment to go to God on this very first Sunday of the new year, connect with him, and allow him to minister to you deeply. And then I'm just going to pray for us. Go to him. God, I pray that everyone in this room would know how beautiful they are in your eyes. I pray that they would see that.
they would know that they are truly beautiful and perfect in your eyes because they are. But I pray you would also remind them, God, that when they're bitter, they often lose sight of how perfect they are in your eyes. They lose sight of how perfect things can be even in their lives, regardless of their circumstances, as long as they have you. Help us to accept people we don't like, God, as hard as it is. And God, I think there's some in this room, the person that they got to accept is not other people, but it's themselves. Because they really struggle to even like themselves. So would you just teach them to accept themselves for who they are, created in your beautiful perfection. Not in the perfection of the world, but in your perfection. Would you teach my brothers and sisters, give them space to mourn? Because some people in this room have gone through so much in their lives and they've never had a place, a safe place to mourn. I pray you take away all the fear and that they would be so courageous like a mom giving birth to a child, not really knowing what's gonna fully happen to her body, but they would be so courageous in mourning and that something beautiful will be birthed out of their lives when you comfort them. And through it all, God, would you just help our church to be unified because we know what it means to suffer for Jesus. And we know the joy that comes from it, the hope, the character, the perseverance. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Lord, that you were the perfect example by suffering for us so that we too can learn to suffer and live in that love. So thank you for this message and I pray that you would just really continue to just minister to us as a congregation even now. In your name we pray, amen. Hey, there's some next steps that I'd love for you to take. If you could flip over your communication card. The first is you're committing your life to Jesus for the very first time. If you've never done that, please check that off. and. Uh, We'll make sure we get back to you. We would love for you to go to the next table, which is the second table on the left when you walk outside these doors. Uh, they have a new believers packet that they love to give to you and pray with you. Second, um, it's not easy to mourn. And for some of you, your mourning might be best sought out if you did it in the presence of a counselor, a paid professional, uh, so that you don't feel like you're alone. Um, check that off, that you're gonna do that. Maybe the counselor is not paid, maybe it's just a friend that will cry with you. Sometimes the greatest advice you can give to someone when they're mourning is not sharing advice, but just offering them a shoulder to cry on. It's the best way to help people mourn. Third, I will accept the person I dislike by connecting with them this week. Who are those people? Would you be willing to accept them? Fourth, I will give to the Christmas offering. Uh, we're continuing in our Christmas offering for this next month. And uh, the money that we give, that we receive from you, goes directly out to impacting people's lives. None of it goes to our church. It all goes to missional causes. And the last thing, um, if you want to learn more, maybe you started coming to our church in the summer, and you don't even know what this Beyond the Building thing is about. If you want to learn more about it, we have a meeting on February 3rd at 1.30 p.m. Uh, we're going to have lunch and everything as well. I'd love to invite you. Kevin and I will be there. We'd love to share with you a little bit about what God has placed upon our hearts as, as a leadership and where God's leading us to eventually build a permanent home here in Englewood. I'd love for you to think about being a part of something that literally is going to make history. All right, so just check that off.